Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Yo, we're back with another episode of Meditation Party. This is an experiment we've been running with a chattier format, more of a morning zoo vibe, but way deeper, of course. The real agenda here is to show you that meditation does not have to be a solo death march. It is vastly enhanced by having friends. Speaking of, my co-pilots are two very close friends of mine, the great meditation teachers, Sebene Selassie and Jeff Warren. The feedback we got from our first episode was overwhelmingly positive, so we're going for it again, although we still want your feedback, so hit me up on Twitter or go to our website if you wanna tell me what you think. This time at the party, we're gonna talk to Jeff about what it's like to be a meditation teacher who has ADHD. This is a huge issue for Jeff. And it was really actually quite moving for me as his friend to watch him open up about this. Just to say, even if you don't have ADHD, there's a lot of practical value to this conversation because we all have unruly minds. And Jeff has found some really good ways to work with this condition. We also talk about drugs, specifically psychedelics, and whether you're violating Buddhist precepts if you take them. We actually started talking about that in response to a listener question. We have a whole segment here in which we take your questions and we also respond to a question where somebody talks about how frustrating it can be to have to repeatedly wake up from distraction in meditation. And finally, we have a segment where we talk about the stuff we're really psyched about right now in which Sebene will sing for us. Many of you are familiar with Seb and Jeff, but for those of you who aren't, Sebene Selassie describes herself, and I'm quoting here as a writer, teacher, and immigrant weirdo. She teaches meditation on the 10% Happier app and is the author of a great book called You Belong. She's based in Brooklyn. Jeff Warren is also a writer and meditation teacher. He and I co-wrote a book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. He also hosts a podcast called the Consciousness Explorers Podcast. He's based in Toronto. As I like to say, he's my favorite Canadian. And we actually recorded this interview in Canada, in Toronto, to be exact. We captured both audio and video. So if you want to see the video version, you can go to the 10% Happier channel on YouTube. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. One other quick note before we dive in here. Seb, Jeff, and I are having so much fun hanging out together that we've also decided to put on a meditation retreat. It's gonna be a weekend thing at Omega, which is a few hours outside of New York City. It's coming up in October, so you've got plenty of time to plan. If you wanna go, if you wanna sign up, we put a link in the show notes. You can go in person or actually you can sign up digitally and do it on Zoom. So again, the link is in the show notes. We will get started with the meditation party right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I gotta tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner, Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first... 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Seven Aislasi, Jeffrey Warren, welcome to the party. Thank you, Dan. Good to be in person. Good to be here together, seeing your faces. And this is, we should do this every time. <laughs> I know. I mean, but th- it came about because of a rare set yeah. of yeah. circumstances. Yeah. You live in Toronto, so that's where we are. Seven A was in Toronto for some personal stuff, and then I was in Vancouver at the TED conference and flew here. So the stars aligned. The to, Canadian vortex yes. pulled everybody in. <clears throat> yeah, it's like whatever the northern version of the Bermuda Triangle. Less lethal. <laughs> yeah. Weather is terrible. Yeah, the northern passage. <laughs> but everyone's really nice. People are really nice. <laughs> yeah. With Jeff's wife last night, she kept saying, "I'm sorry." lots of apologizing yeah everyone's favorite canadianisms yep yeah they were happening so how do you feel being back for round two we got a lot of feedback on the first one and i know i texted you guys a million messages from people how did that all land for you the feedback i mean the feedback was almost all positive and really enthusiastic and that felt great and some of the critical kind of questions about how we were doing things, you know, the cussing. It's also helpful to hear. We might still cuss. Fuck yeah, but, we're going to cuss. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt really, really good about it. I also felt really just, it was so tender the way we processed amongst ourselves mm-hmm. and that what that led to in terms of deepening our conversations about meditation, about awakening, about woo-woo stuff and manifesting, just all of it. it was really powerful for me. It was transformative, I have to say. 
to see this, all of these comments coming in because we got so many comments. The comments and our conversations uh, about the comments, I about see. our experience. Like, it was really cool. Yeah, I mean, this is what it's all about for me. Being in a continual process, being in a conversation where you have, there's things that you're passionate about and you're continually refining your ideas about it. You bounce off with each other. And that, to me, is like I'm just very psyched that we get to do that. So, And then all the fact that everyone was into it, that so many people were into it. I mean, it's just gravy. How is it for you, Dan? Well, I was going to say, I, I had an observation, which was that I, just watching the two of you process this feedback, because I am used to feedback. I mean, I, I've been a news anchor for so long. I have a Twitter feed. I get a lot of feedback. And I've done two 360 reviews. Like, I know what it's like. And so it was interesting because 98% of the feedback, we got a tsunami of feedback, and 98% of it was just love bombing. And then there were a few, like there was like one person who didn't like us swearing that much, even though a million people said they love us swearing. And then there were a few like little tweaks about various things. And the two of you, I could see you cotton on to the, to the negative ones <laughs> and really like discuss them. And I was like, no, 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 no. That's the outlier. Anyway, do you think I'm interpreting this appropriately? No, I think you're right. Yeah, I'm not used to that. So yes, I, I pay attention I always ask for critical feedback after I offer anything. You know, I send an anonymous survey and I rarely get anything back that's critical and constructive. Mm. But when I do, I definitely pay attention to it, like in a maybe outsized way, like you're saying. Well, I think there's a difference between critical and constructive, or I think constructive is a subset of critical. Yes, true. And there are the critical ones that we got not all of them were constructive and I, I'm sort of used to now like sorting that, but I could see you guys like, I almost like didn't want to send you the negative ones because I could see, I, I would imagine that there would be a spiral, not a spiral, but that you would really fasten onto it. And yeah. I mean, it's just, it's like we have a negativity bias and it's just the way it is. Yeah. I, I, from my experience of that is not that I'm spinning out in some negative way. It's more like, okay, I just take each criticism. Is there a way I can back up and then integrate this and it comes from when I'm, because I know I have a larger platform and I'm, so I'm always thinking about how to reach the largest number of people in a way that's going to make everyone feel included. Anytime I hear a critique, my mind is always like, okay, well, how can I include this person too in a way that's still going to keep the integrity of what we're doing or what the teaching is, but without necessarily alienating them. So I just see it as like a kind of problem to solve. And so that's where I go. But then I, then I guess what it helped me realize is when you're continually doing that, you actually may then lose somebody else. You know, you, you back up to include this person, but then there's this, this group over here that falls out. So Yeah, it's like they say that the camel is an animal created by a committee. And I'm sensitive to the negative feedback, too. I see it and register it for sure in an outsized way. But I, over time, have developed some ability, and I can get knocked off my center, but some ability to say, oh, yeah, if I take all of this feedback, it's going to dilute what we're trying to do. So if one person out of 200 writes in and says, don't say fuck, I got to say gotta, it. Yeah, I'm going to. Well, actually, it makes me more likely to say it because that's my problem is if you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to be more likely to do it. Yeah. So I'm the brat at the table. Well, what I was referring to, too, is kind of our process of what was constructive feedback about mostly ourselves. And, you know, I started it with an email just noticing the ways that I held back in our manifesting conversation. And that led to a lot of 
conversation between us around, okay, what does that mean? And what are we not showing of ourselves? Because maybe we're afraid of Dan's audience not getting us or, or I'll speak for myself, you know, but I think Jeff was mirroring the same thing. That was really interesting feedback for me, like mm. that constructive conversation. And it led to me coming out as a mystic on my newsletter, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. really naming some things about myself that I realized through our conversation last yeah. time that I, was, I wasn't I was really owning up to. Yeah. Can, let me just back up for a second because people might not remember the manifestation conversation. So I, this is the first meditation party you're listening to and you didn't hear the first one. We got a voicemail and we're going to do some listener calls in the course of this episode. We got a voicemail about meditation manifestation, which can be interpreted in its most negative as like the power of positive thinking or like that DVD, The Secret, that tells you through the law of attraction, you can get anything you want through the power of your thoughts. And I had a very negative, perhaps somewhat dysregulated reaction to the idea of manifestation, whereas Seb and Jeff have a much more open mind about the issue. And actually, this is where I thought we got the most thoughtful critiques of me, not of anything you guys did, but that I was perhaps, a, some people were like, yeah, go get him, Dan. And other people were like, no, you know, I don't, th- I don't think you, Dan, are fully understanding what manifestation is. And that I think we're not going to do it today, but that I actually think is a big discussion we should have on the show at some point. Yeah, just, it's interesting because I know today we're going to talk a little bit about neurodiversity and there's a term in neurodiversity called masking. And it often happens without you kind of know you're doing it. Like there's a certain set of assumptions around, say, your family of origin and then your culture about the thing, the ways you need to be, the things you need to think. And you just sort of take these on without realizing it. And so I think that this conversation partly made me realize that there are certain ways I censor myself in what I want to say because I want to connect to who I imagine this particular audience is or a particular person. So if Dan has a really strong feelings about, say, the mystical side of stuff, then I'll a little bit censor myself just to keep in that stream. But actually, I'm doing myself a disservice because what I really believe is it's bigger, more interesting, and actually would make for a richer conversation. Yes, yes. Well, I just want to respond because both of you said something similar there about worrying about what I'm going to think or what the audience is going to think. And I think I'm speaking on behalf of the audience when I say, let the freak flag fly. Don't censor yourself. Do whatever you want to do. You know, I position myself as a skeptic and all that, but I'm here at the table. And if I want to ask you skeptical questions, I will. But we should talk the way we would talk over dinner where you would definitely let the flag fly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That idea of masking and assimilation is something we all experience. And so, yeah, yeah, this invitation to authenticity is, I think, a big part of the meditation party. Totally. Totally. Well said. We're going to (laughs) get freaky today. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's dive into segment number one here, which we're tentatively in all of these segment names. We're calling it the shit, where one of us will talk about something going on in our lives that is hard. And Jeff is in the hot seat today. Seb was last time and said some incredible stuff. I recommend everybody go back and listen to it. In order to tee up this discussion with you, Jeff, we asked people to call in with questions. And we're going to do a whole Q&A segment later in the show. But there was one question that actually we want to play now because it will actually tee you up to talk about your shit. So let's play that question. Hi, this question is specifically for Jeff. First of all, I just want to say, I guess, to Dan, I've loved the podcast. Um, I've been listening for a few years now, and it's been really instrumental with me as I just develop a better relationship with my mind. I've actually recently got a diagnosis for adult ADHD, and that sort of medication, you know, that as well just made my life just so much better. Again, something I've been thinking about is meditation for people with ADHD. It's 
be a real challenge for me, I think, more so than maybe others, to find that calm in my brain to try and keep my thoughts a little bit more steady to concentrate on the breath or, or whatever it is that I'm trying to focus on. And so I would just love to hear more about how neurodivergent individuals can still reap the benefits of mindfulness and meditation. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, yes, my brother. Well, we are going to talk about that. Okay, so this is the single biggest issue of my life. Being a parent is the biggest issue of my life, and the two actually are back and forth. There's this dance, the fact that I'm, I have ADHD, my wife has ADHD, and we're strong ADHD. This is not a little bit ADHD. This is like, I was diagnosed when I was 32, but it was a joke among my friends. Everybody knew that I had ADHD, and I had it since I was a kid, and, and it presents very specific challenges. And actually, the first thing to say about it right off the top is trying to articulate how ADHD is challenging and some of the thoughts I have around it in practice because I spent my entire life thinking about this actually causes my ADHD symptoms to increase. I've heard people talk about what it's like, but I am, I'm most curious about what your experience of it is yeah. so that people who don't have this can really understand in the same way we've taken a lot of time in our culture to explain what it feels like to be a woman or a black person or what microaggressions are. So people who don't have that direct mm -hmm. experience can really understand well, what is it and then what challenges does that present to you? Also, what benefits might it bring to you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's start here. So, I mean, the first thing to say is there's actually a lot of diversity within ADHD itself. Like it presents differently in different people. I mean, the two big ways it presents, there's more of an inattentive way, which actually there's now all this research coming out that a lot of women have an inattentive form of ADHD and that never got diagnosed. It just was kind of flew under the radar. So that's more the dreamy, checked out aspect of ADHD. And then there's the way it presents in me, which is really hyperactive, impulsive, jumping around. So there's high-risk behaviors. You can imagine there's challenges associated with that. That was big time me when I was young. I was a major risk seeker, lots of drugs and alcohol. I got all kinds of accidents. I mean, I have something like seven or eight near-death experiences directly related to just high-risk behavior, like insane things like getting attacked by wild dogs and a giant bar fights with surfers and almost drowning in waves that I should never have been in and falling out of a tree and breaking my neck when I was high on mushrooms. And it goes on and on. It's like ridiculous, beat up by hell's angels. I mean, it's like, it, it, it's very funny, actually. When I yeah, when I hear it. that, I'm like, this guy's awesome. <laughs> it was fun. I mean, that's another thing about ADHD, like up for anything. We just, this kind of high energy, excitability, positive, kind and of really fun at parties. the attentive kind. I'm just speaking for myself. That's more mm. the impulsive. Okay. There's a kind of buoyant, joyous, golden retriever quality to ADHD that is very, you know, people do like having you at parties. And <laughs> parties was fun. And parties was how I was regulating back then. So when you're ADHD, you have challenges with the classic executive functions. And that includes putting in place healthy habits that can help you in your life. So my experience of being ADHD largely in my 20s was I had this incredible amount of energy, I had an incredible amount of interest in lots of things, but I could not focus. I moved cities every two years. I lived all over the world. I moved relationships every six months. I moved homes every three months. I moved jobs every two months. You know, every time I would get bored of one, I would just jump into a new thing. And that it's the classic kind of hungry ghost thing that Buddhism is trying to address, but it's like on steroids if you're ADHD. So you have this 
restless sense of dissatisfaction, the sense of energy. You always need to move. You always got to be switching it up. And you know the moving itself is dysfunctional. And I used to sit down and I'd be stuck in email land for 12 hours straight. I wouldn't breathe. I wouldn't go to the bathroom. I wouldn't eat. You know, you get hyper-focused in. That's another feature. But then you can't pull out. So hey, agencies, you have trouble with transitions. You have trouble pulling out of one thing and getting into the other thing. So you know you're doing something that's not really serving you. You can't pull out of it. Then when you finally, the day's over, you have all this shame that you didn't get anything done. And there you are. And this is your life. The things you're trying to get done are make money to find a job, be in a relationship. In my case now, it's take care of a family. So you've got all these stakes. So that's part of it. And because you're not able to follow through on things, there's just all this shame around not finishing projects. So I have like five book projects that I've half done. So that how do you rein in and regulate? So it's funny because you can get focused, yeah. which, hello, yeah. I would love that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. But then you get sort of, is it like a vortex? Hyperfocused, yeah. Yeah. So it's every neurodiverse condition has its kind of like superpower liner. And that's part of learning about your situation is figuring out what that superpower is. And ADHD has many. One, not everyone has the, the hyperfocus, but that is one of it. When you're really interested in a subject, when you're highly motivated, you can just go forever. And it's amazing. Like I got the subject that I was interested in was the mind. That's how I stayed with meditation. One of the things I did was I just hyper-focused in on meditation itself is the experience of meditation. What, how does the mind work? What could I notice that was happening in real time? That's why I could sit for these super long meditations. So if you're ADHD, you can recognize that there is this incredible learning adventure in the mind that you there are absolutely things you can do internally to learn to regulate your internal state. Not only are there things you can do internally, there's this mystery inside yourself that will continue to unfold and lead you into the most rich, juicy, mystical goodness. That's true. Have you heard that from other people? Or is that true for you because you have this propensity and interest? Mm. And Well, it's definitely true for me, but I think it's anyone who commits to learning about themselves and holds the direction. I think it's true for absolutely every one of those people that insights start to emerge. And the nature of an insight is that you feel like you're learning something more fundamental about who you are, how the world works, and that then creates its own momentum. Well, so you're saying that though, if you have this sort of attentive ADHD that has this hyper-focus, you can use it to actually turn that focus inwards and have this journey of self-knowing and self-exploration that can lead to these insights. Like that's one way to, to sort yeah, of use yeah, that tendency. I'm saying that anyone who does that can then go on that journey. For the thing with ADHD is, what is the thing that's going to be really a, of interest to you? So that is actually one of the ways to work with ADHD is to find the thing that really interests you and to let yourself get into these absorbed states. However, you have to learn the basis of self-regulation. So the basis of self-regulation is learning how to pull out and come back to the present. So you're not going wholeheartedly into your thing in a way that's creating damage to your body. In terms of the experience, so you have the hyper-focus going in millions of directions like I'm doing right now. You have high sensitivity. The only thing you're born with is the high sensitivity. Everything else is something that develops through probably developmental. That's some of the thinking around that. So being highly sensitive means that you have very thin boundaries. You're easily pulled into different directions by people, by situations. And that's kind of like, then you take that little tender, vulnerable nervous system and put it into childhood stressors. 
And then you can develop these chronic problems with attention and regulation. But it, so the sensitivity is going to be there your whole life. And the sensitivity means you easily go into emotional overwhelm. Like, Can I ask a question again? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how does that sensitivity show up for you like these oh days? Like what are you sensitive to? Oh my God, everything. So, so you really pick up on everything. what's going on around you yeah. all the time. You're like a vibe uh, magnet. Like a vibe magnet, not just emotional. Like So that's what the, that's the nature of the distractibility of ADHD. But the sensitivity is a superpower. I have so much compassion for people because I can see in like half a second when someone's having a challenging time. Is that a product of the ADHD itself or that's your wisdom practice? Like Maybe both. Yeah. Maybe just through experience. So it's like you can take your thing that is so challenging and ends up being this incredible gift that you end up being able to bring into the world. And you're sensitized to the entire network of ideas and possible connections. That so, makes you... A- such a great meditation teacher. Yeah. I, you know, I say all the time, I don't think it's any secret. I'm basically teaching the same meditation over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like it's a good one, but I love your meditations because they're just so creative. Yeah, they draw on a lot of different things and you can use that again as a superpower. So here's another thing. This is super important is the practice. The act of articulating exactly how you're being challenged in the moment is healing. It takes you out of that experience of challenge and gives you more perspective. So that is the nature of insight. You suddenly have this, oh my gosh, aha moment. You come out of the trance that you've been in, this kind of assumption that you've been living in that's filled up all the entire bandwidth of your life. And now you see that you've been doing that and now all of a sudden you have space around it. And now from that place of space, you have more agency around whether or not you want to be in that pattern or out of that pattern. So this is why mindfulness is, I think, the one of the most important practices you can bring to support ADHD, to be able to go, okay, what is actually happening right here? Pause, come back to your breath, that ability to self-regulate. If you're trying to meditate as an ADHD person, you don't need to stay with the breath or only one object. It's going to be hard. You can let yourself wander. You can have a freestyle focus, but then you come back and then you wander and you come back. A habit you're going to come back to, to know how to meditate on the fly it sounds paradoxical, but to not have to stop what you're doing, to keep doing whatever it is you're doing, but slowly begin to thread in a kind of meditative principle, like the wandering and coming back or a bit of self-compassion or something. That's really key. So you're not making like meditation has to be the strict thing that's happening over here. Instead, it can be this thing that I'm continually threading in or flowing into my life. What about for people who are feeling they can't sit still, they're hyper-caffeinated chipmunk Mm -hmm. energy uh, move rolling through. Yeah, I was just going to say walking Absolutely. or standing meditation. Yeah, yeah, so that's another big one. Actually, I would say if you know you have ADHD or you really feel like you're resonating with some of what I'm saying, and you have a lot of the energy restlessness, start by shaking. I do this all the time. Start by shaking your body, just like a little dance, like shake your arms, shake your fingers, just shake out your whole body. And you could stay doing that. You can move into kind of more fluid movement. You can have a dance party. You can do a more animated yoga series, tai chi, walking. You can just keep with the movement. Or you just shake, 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 and it gives you something to work with. And it feels it can feel like you're actually, it can feel cathartic, like you're letting go of some of that restlessness. Then you can kind of stop. 
I have this slow motion dance party where you dance with your own self-consciousness. You dance with your restlessness. Like you locate the feelings and then you just start to move with them. Like you're having a slow dance with them at the high school prom. When are you going to do that with Dan, please? You're you're calling me (laughs) self-conscious? I just want to see you dance with yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Intentionally dancing with yourself. Dan, when I see you do the Mm self-hugging, when I'm looking at you from behind, I just see the arms. I'm like, oh, Dan's Dan's hugging himself. Just so you know he's making this up. I that, I, so that makes me feel really good. Like, I'm like, Dan's having a slow motion dance party. Let's just himself. say odds are low. Yeah. You'll be doing the slow motion dance party. Now that we're talking about this, we there's no month, way we're not doing this in our until meditation dance party in October. Like, slip something into my drink. Yeah, that's another way to regulate, of course. <laughs> yeah. One last thing I kind of wanted to offer up, which is the perspective piece. I'm 52 years old now. ADHD my entire adult life. I've been a practitioner of some kind most of my adult life. And I've been able to see that for me, it's been a kind of journey with certain perspectives at each part of the journey. So I'll just offer that up. Like at the beginning of the journey is sort of this stage of complete confusion where you don't know, you don't even know how you are. You have a certain set of expectations of how you're supposed to be, norms in the culture, and you're like a round peg trying to fit into a square hole. You just have all this anxiousness and maybe self-consciousness around not fitting in, but you don't know why yet. So there's this kind of stage of beginning to get curious about yourself. What's happening? How am I really? Like, what is the nature of my sensitivity? What's the nature of my... You just start to narrow in on who this nervous system is. And that goes into a stage of really learning, where you're reading books about it, you're talking to people, you're listening to podcasts, you're beginning to develop a sense of who this person is. And usually from there, you can go into a stage of beginning to find the supports, the structures, the practices that are going to help you. It may just be the most basic remedial concentration practice is exactly the medicine. So this is a stage of experimenting, of learning, talking to maybe there's a coach or a therapist, it's talking to a psychiatrist, if the medication route is something that needs to happen. And you eventually begin to find a set of supports or structures in your life. And then you move into a stage where I would call real empowerment but identified empowerment, where you are owning your neurodiverse condition. You're not trying to mask it. You're talking about openly insofar as it's in a safe space. And then I would just offer as a meditator that for the past 10 years for me, a kind of empowered disidentification. That when you watch any neurodiverse condition, when I watch my moment-to-moment experience of ADHD, the symptoms of the challenges go up and down. And actually, what you start to notice is the one who's looking, the one who's mindful, doesn't have ADHD. (laughs) There's no ADHD in there at all. There's nothing in there. There's nothing in there. There's just awareness. And that is the ultimate relief. My mind and body will always be predisposed to ADHD, but it is not the heart, the core of who I am. And actually, the more I only narrowly identify with that, the more I put a limit on myself that I don't need. So there is a kind of spaciousness and fluid, supple, joyful way of being in the world, regardless of what your condition is in the mind and body. So I'm pinging around all four of those stages. So it's not like it's linear, but so that, my friends, is my opus on ADHD and practice. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Bravo. Oh, what a relief. (laughs) I don't want to talk about that anymore. 
That was, that was hard for you. It was. Did you notice how I was faster at the beginning, more nervous? And then as I got more out, it's like it was an exorcism. Hmm. So I'm curious for your two takes on that. As my friends and as meditators, what, what comes up when you hear all that? Any part of it? I mean, for me, I, I was so curious about what your experience of it is. And I appreciate you continually pointing to the fact that there it's neurodiversity, that there are a lot of diverse experiences of it. And I could relate to so much of it, obviously not to the intensity of yours. I don't have that hyper-focus, but especially some of the ways you described what helps with it, that's also what helps me with my particular patterns that aren't ADHD. Oh, yeah. But it was it was really cool to hear the universality yeah. of just working with a challenging mind, which is pretty mm. much everybody's mind and heart, yeah. you know. Totally. And, but I also I realized how little I know about ADHD from different perspectives because I know it from people in my life who have it. And actually, as you were referencing, I have a few girlfriends who are very late stage diagnoses. Yeah. And that is helping them understand all these things that they thought were wrong about them all these exactly. years. Exactly. You think they're character defects. Or, oh, I mean, they were yeah. just so self-punishing yeah, for exactly. so long. And it was, it was it's like their mind just, yeah. when they got this diagnosis to understand yeah. so much of their life made sense now. Exactly. A diagnosis can all of a sudden connect you to best practices, mm. to a whole communities of people talking about, hey, I have this diagnosis too. This is what I do. This is what helps. This is what doesn't help. And that is the first big game changer for me. Mm. Yeah, I had two responses. One is definitely keyed in on the universality there. One, I, I mean, many of us will never get diagnoses of ADHD, but we all know what it's like to struggle with our attention and our executive function, mm -hmm. either where we have a lack of attention or a hyper-focus. And so there's so many things that you recommended there that would be applicable to those of us who don't have a diagnosis. The second thing that I particularly keyed in on was when you said just naming your experience right now can be a relief. I, I don't have ADHD, but I have panic disorder. And that is what they tell you. You know, you're in a situation where you're like, they close the door in an airplane and I realize I can't get off of this thing and I start to freak out. Well, I can just become aware of the physical sensations of the fear and maybe even put a number on it. Oh, it's an eight right now. Oh, it's a nine. No, now it's a seven. You see that it's moving and you're kind of not so stuck in it when you're moving into the mode of the watcher. So yeah, I think there was a lot that you said in there that was applicable to all of us. Yeah. And actually that just loops back to that voicemail that started it all where he talked about that his thoughts just being so wild and having a hard time really staying with it. So you don't have to, you don't have to stop thoughts. You really don't. You just need to get distracted and come back. That it's a process of always coming home. It's not a process of staying home. <laughs> so you get distracted, you come back, you try, and that's the practice. You try as best as possible to let those thoughts be there. You don't interfere when you, you keep coming back. And that's the training that everyone's in. And it just, it lets, it, that part of it is not different for an ADHD person. We're going to talk about that after the break because we're going to do some voicemails from listeners. And one of them is about what do you do when you wake up from distraction, which that's an experience we all have. So we're going to dive into that. We're also going to talk about, and this is fitting since this is a party, drugs. We're going to talk about psychedelics. There's some confusion about whether that's kosher to do if you're into meditation. Is it 420? <laughs> <laughs> we're not just talking about it, Dan. <laughs> Super. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, drug talk. 
for my youth. <laughs> no, yes, no, I, I can hear past the duchy in the background. All right. Great job, Jeff. Thank you for doing that. Mm. Appreciate it. We'll be right back after these quick messages from the people who pay our bills. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns, quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, welcome back to Meditation Party with Seven A Lassie and Jeff Warren. Jeff, great job on that last segment. Really appreciate it. This segment, we're toying with the name, What's Your Problem? Where we get people to call us and ask us questions. By the way, if you're listening to this, we'll give you the number for you to call in if you want to call in next time. Here are some questions from folks who pulled the trigger and called us. The first one has to do with substances and drugs. That's from Vanya. Here we go. Hi, Meditation Party. My name is Vanya, and I have a question about substances and drugs. It seems like everyone does them, whether it be the two casual nightly glasses of wine or a myriad of psychedelic trips. Everyone from my therapist to my meditation teacher to my friends are recommending them for healing. Everyone seems to be on drugs today. The Buddha talks about substances leading to heedlessness, but there's also this feeling in today's culture that psychedelics are needed to get profound healing. 
Teachers on your show have even encouraged this, Dan, and even other spiritual people I've spoken to all say that psychedelics are what helped them with major breakthroughs. So is being a sober meditator not enough? Am I simply being aversive and judgmental? Thanks for your time. Seb, you want to you wanna pick up on that? I love oh. this question. It's such a good question. Yeah, maybe I'll say a little bit and then we can make it a conversation because I, I could go on about this for a long time and there's just so much there because just even that pairing, just substances and drugs and it, so many things are drugs. Caffeine is a drug. Yep. There's a great Michael Pollan book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. Is that what it's called? Well, he wrote How, How to Change, Change Your Mind, Mind and, and then, he wrote a follow-up book where he came on the show and talked about it. Well, I'll right. put a link to it in the show notes where he talked about one of them was caffeine. One, one, of, the one of them was caffeine. Yes. That was one of the most fascinating things I've ever read, just how how powerful a drug that is. And so what we classify as drugs, what we classify as illegal drugs or illicit drugs versus the legal drugs of alcohol and pharmaceuticals that we take. And so many people are on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. And ADHD so, meds. It, yes. And so we are a culture, and I'm talking about modernity really here, not just American or Canadian culture, that is on drugs all the time. So what we classify as drugs somehow interfering with our meditation or interfering with our clarity, there are very few people who aren't on any quote unquote drugs or substances. I find sugar is a drug. I have mm -hmm. a lot of friends in recovery. I don't really drink much anymore, but I'm not in recovery, but I have a lot of friends who are in recovery and some of them become really intense sugar addicts, <laughs> you know, and recovery spaces are notorious for having the cakes and the coffee and, and, cigarettes. The and cigarettes. And so, yeah, we, we really need to acknowledge the things that affect us, affect our minds, affect our moods that we turn to. And, you know, maybe we all need to be in some form of recovery around our addictions, the things that we use to self-medicate and, and regulate. So I, I want to start by saying that before we launch into plant medicines and psychedelics and, and things that are popping up as therapeutic tools, sometimes used really skillfully and carefully and sometimes used really kind of just randomly and and not not so... Well, you know, one thing I that was a beautiful point, and also let's just say the obvious, which is there's a, a racial component to this too. That we there are some drugs that we've made illegal or decided to enforce the laws on, and then other drugs where it was you know like we looked the other way or we legalized it. So there's a, there are a lot of people in prison right now in the states, at least, who got there by selling drugs that are now legal. To, just to put that out there. The second thing to say is that f for me, just off the top of it, is that Vanya referenced the Buddha talking about don't use substances that lead to heedlessness. I'm probably mangling the words of the Buddha there, but I think close enough. And I think the key words there, and you guys please correct me if I'm wrong, I think the key words there, there are that lead to heedlessness. So I know plenty of meditation teachers that will have a drink of wine every once in a while. I don't know that makes them bad Buddhists. And I know plenty of meditation teachers who are deeply, I think I'm sitting with two of them, who are deeply into plant medicine. And I mean, I think the key word there is medicine, you know, plant medicine. So I, I don't think there's some, at my reading of Buddhism, and you guys will correct me if, and I'm not even here to say that Buddhism is the be all end all here, but my reading of it is not that you can't take what we might call drugs. It's like, does it lead to heedlessness? And that can happen with sugar. 
Well, and there are prohibitions for followers of certain traditions and for monastics. And I don't necessarily agree with them. There are also prohibitions against wearing makeup or jewelry or against dancing or singing or music. So there's that we have to sort of take it with a grain of salt in terms of what we think is right for our lives as moderns in this moment and who were these prescriptions for and, and why and which ones are we adopting and are we adopting them because they fit into our puritanical North American, European cultural norms anyways. And so we love to flagellate ourselves with that. (laughs) Well, I just want to go pointedly to Vandy's question, which is, and just say, psychedelics are very fashionable right now. And no, you don't need to do them (laughs) at all. (laughs) They can offer really interesting insights. There's no question. There's a reason that Tons of people who are into meditation now started out in psychedelics. That was definitely a story of kind of one of the stories of the 60s and 70s and does lead to kind of spiritual insights, but different strokes for different folks. I do no drugs right now, like or almost none, except for the ones that you're talking about, caffeine. I definitely have a beer at the end of the night, which I love. I'm Canadian. That will never stop. (laughs) But like I'm just, my system is too sensitive to do too much. Like, and I probably because I'd over indulged when I was younger. And I enjoy going to parties and being completely sober for the most part and being able to dance. And, you know, I love it. And there was a time when I really, really loved ceremony. I loved intentional use of plant medicine. Ayahuasca was the main one that I was doing. And I found it was an amazing complement to my meditation practice. I started to appreciate how I'd had no, this humility. I have no clue how reality is. Like again and again, the multidimensional weirdness and richness and these experiences of oneness and connection and the, and the humbling, the way it puts you in your place, really, truly putting you the human in the human's place. I mean, I've had meditation experiences that were kind of similar, but there was something so dramatic and impactful about the way it happened in some of these plant medicine ceremonies. So, and then from that, these ceremonies are great for kind of initiation experiences, you know, they usher you in a different stage of your life. They help you suddenly see how you've been operating from a particular perspective in the world and that you don't need to operate from that perspective anymore. Or the person you thought you were has actually changed and there's this opportunity to change and move on and change jobs or whatever. So there's so much benefit, which is to say there is a lot of goodness there. And because it's trendy right now, everyone's trying to do it. Everyone's, everyone thinks that they then need to do it for healing and you don't need to do it for healing. And there's lots of problems depending on it. I mean, in these sort of psychedelic spaces, they expect these big healings, these big transformations, and it doesn't happen. And then where are they? Or it does happen, but then they have no integration or no ability to stay with the insights afterwards, which is why meditation practice is so supportive. So there's tons of critiques coming out about the psychedelic renaissance, and a lot of people aren't doing it intelligently at all. So it's a complicated subject. It is complicated, you know, so I I don't think we're going to answer everything here, but there are things we can point to that help us understand that these are tools. And there's a reason why it's called medicine deliberately, and that these are indigenous tools, just the same way we point to Buddhism as like this ancient technology or this ancient wisdom system, these are ancient ways of knowing how to heal. And a lot of these modern spaces are coming out of indigenous traditions. And sometimes that's not acknowledged. That was an interesting thing between Michael Pollan's first book and his second book about this, is that he really didn't acknowledge that. And I felt like without 
blatantly stating it, he had a corrective in his second mm-hmm. book, as well as in his Netflix special, to really acknowledge where these tools and medicines yeah. and systems and ways of knowing are coming from, because those are the experts, right? To, yeah. to really know how to facilitate that. And people are learning from that. Yeah. And, and not that we need to go backwards and only do things of the past, but then how do we integrate that, yeah. that knowing, that knowledge into modern day healing? Yeah. And there are tons of studies and research and, yeah. and also underground stuff that's happening that's proving that, that a yeah. lot of people are finding healing from trauma and healing from patterns and, and also physical healing from these practices, from yeah. these medicine spaces. And that's really important. And like you're saying, it can be overdone. It can be abused. You know, there can be sort of an addictive quality to yeah. the to the heightened experience. Yeah. Because it is such a powerful experience. Yeah. Same way people can get addicted to retreats. You know, just keep going back to retreats and not really attending to their daily life. And that integration yeah. is really, really important. And it could be made also all about you. It could be yet another thing you're doing to work with your stuff. Yes. <laughs> as opposed to what they're in an indigenous context, it was about connecting to outside of you, the larger world, mm. all the kind of those animate forces surrounding you. And that is very different than sitting in a room with what well, you're like Harvard trained psychologist and doing your dose of psilocybin and all about so you can have a particular kind of experience, like doing it in a lab, you know. And that can be, and that can be the, thing. Can yeah, be the doorway absolutely. into a much more expansive experience. Uh, I'm, I, I mean, I haven't done any of these things, but the... Not uh, yet, Dan. Not yet. I am, I really am in Meditation party. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, meditation. Party. party freak out. Party, uh, party. I'm very intrigued by indigenous wisdom. And I'm just curious, like, how do you guys feel about the more modern molecules like LSD or MDMA or ketamine? I love them all. I have had some very good times <laughs> on every one of those molecules, Daniel. As a matter of fact, I love LSD. Fantastic stuff. I, I, I really, too. I've said this before, but I really <clears throat> feel like I unintentionally healed a lot of trauma as a young mm-hmm. person just through mushrooms, LSD, ecstasy at the time yeah. it was called, and MDMA. And I didn't know I was doing that, yeah. but yeah. I had such mind, soul expanding experiences. I released a lot of emotion and just expressed a lot of grief, but also found joy that I'd never really been able to access because of all the trauma experience. Totally did that unintentional healing. I was was giving myself medicine. I didn't know I was giving myself medicine. Just to balance that, I feel the same way. And I feel like I did a disservice in some ways to my nervous system because I so overindulged in Mm. it. And that actually some of the bipolar stuff that happened later in my life, I think there's a relationship between that and the amount of drug taking I was doing when I was really young. So, yeah. It's a good point because we have to be careful about all this. Yes. I've come around on me personally. I have so much shame about the cocaine use I and ecstasy use in my 30s after I got home from war zones and then I had a panic attack on television. So embarrassing, so humiliating. And and then I got allergic to alcohol in my late 30s separately. So I was the most straight-edge dude in the world for 15, 20 years. I didn't do any drugs and I didn't drink. And I, like Jeff, you said earlier, I, I can stay up late, sober, and hang out with friends. I love that. But then after I quit being an anchorman and turned 50, I tried MDMA on my 50th birthday and with some friends. And didn't invite us. And didn't invite you guys (laughs) next time. And we were on the beach at a bonfire and 
it was amazing. It was totally amazing. And I don't know, the furtiveness of my drug use in my 30s, you go to the bathroom to do cocaine. It's like it's the whole ritual around it is kind of infused with a kind of shame. And I'm I'm not going to do cocaine again. It's so addictive and I think so dangerous to your heart. But MDMA, you know, that that was a beautiful experience being with my friends. And I did it again the next summer and I probably will do it again this summer. And it's not something I want to get in the habit of doing every weekend, but it, there's a lot of power to it. And doing it now as somebody who has a hold of his mental health issues and isn't trying to self-medicate for something, but really just doing it as, in a kind of, I don't know, ceremonial way or... Yeah, it's like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. I don't know. I see a lot of beauty in it now. And I, maybe people are going to send me a lot of hate tweets for being irresponsible, but that is the way I feel. It's amazing to me. I've been in a lot of different journey spaces over the past few years. And it's amazing to me who's coming to these. Mm. So there is um, incredible growth in plant medicine, in ceremonial use of psychedelics. And I think it's wonderful. Yeah. There are also a lot of meditation teachers who are talking about it, and there are probably more who are not talking about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, who are sure. who are participating? Yes, you know, so it's there. And some of the spaces I've been in really not kind of my world in a lot of ways. And so I'm having interactions with people who are coming from high places in the corporate world and in the social world and government and so many aspects of society that it's touching. Mm. Just to wrap this up, a lot of promise, a lot of potential here. I mean, it's a lot of beauty and peril. Too. Some of these psychedelic spaces are unregulated and... and Most. Uh, yeah, right. And so we've, you know, people have gotten into gnarly situations. And yeah, so this is exciting and fascinating, but proceed with caution. Let's do another voicemail. And this is from somebody who is asking about that moment when you wake up from distraction, which if you're meditating, you understand intimately because it happens a million times. But this is a really interesting question. We'll, we'll talk about it on the other side. Hi, my name is Rachel. I'm calling from Montana. I just wanted to say I love the podcast, the teacher talks, the courses. And the practice has really helped me through some periods of trauma in my life. And I really appreciate this neuroscience and social science-based approach. And so I've been trying to develop more of a habit of meditation. And I haven't had any big epiphanies yet on the cushion, but I'm working on that still. And also, when I'm off the cushion, trying to remember more frequently and wake up, if you will. And sometimes when that happens, I feel like I'm falling into this mindfulness vortex and it's really actually kind of scary and overwhelming and kind of feel like, you know, stop the world, I want to get off, sort of roller coaster, merry-go-round. And I just wondered, so when you're lost and you don't really usually realize the cacophony of thoughts and feelings that are happening because you're just lost in it. But when you wake up, is it normal to have such a violent awakening? <laughs> and does that eventually get easier and kind of pass? Well, just one thing to say that, first of all, Rachel's an excellent question. We kind of wish we had you here live so we can interrogate you further. But the one thing I heard in there that I just want to quickly respond to is this idea that you're working on having epiphanies. I would say maybe don't have expectations and goals in that way because it can be a hindrance. You know, if you're pushing too hard in meditation. This is an experience I've had just millions of times banging my head up against the wall trying to get somewhere, quote unquote, in meditation. And that it's just, just is pretty 
successful recipe for frustration. In terms of like waking up from distraction, I am not sure exactly what you're referring to, but I mean, I've had the experience thousands of times of waking up and seeing some sort of insanity or inanity in my own mind and then layering on top of it a bunch of self-legulation about how I keep getting lost all the time, even though my whole job is to tell people on this podcast and in live audiences everywhere that it's okay to get lost in meditation, that thinking is not stoppable, and that the whole point is just to have a different relationship to the thoughts. And yet, when I wake up from distraction and meditation, it's not uncommon for me to be resistant to the content of what I've just seen and to the fact that I'm getting quote unquote lost at all. Does that make any sense what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. And I agree. It's hard to know exactly what's happening. I wish we could ask questions because I identify with what's said, but I'm not sure I'm interpreting it correctly. And my experience is, oh, sometimes I can feel like I need to follow everything that's happening so I can get overwhelmed by it. Like I need to note it or or have some sort of tracking going on. But I can also just be overwhelmed because what the, the word violent really spoke to me or hit me like that idea that whatever I see or become aware of is just a lot of loaded content, like a lot of emotion or maybe a lot of old stories or grief or anger or fear. Like it could be really charged what's coming up. So there's any number of things that could be happening here. All of them are very identifiable to me. Like I, I identify with them and they seem perfectly normal as part of practice. And for me, coming back to my felt sense experience, like feeling my body, remembering I'm here, not needing to feel like I need to track that. or I've never heard you talk about being in the body before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the key, people. But really, mindfulness is a misnomer, thinking that we always have to pay attention to the mind, but we're a whole human being. And sometimes sort of having that wider perspective that Jeff was talking about earlier and leaning back and just feeling what's happening in the moment can make that a less violent, let's say, experience. You've criticized yourself for all of your meditations are the same thing. It's just get into, get out of your head and into your body. But it's a massive public service. We need to be reminded of this a million times. We is me. Yes, yes, right, <laughs> of course. And sometimes being in your body isn't a safe place to be. Because mm, yes. yes. when I hear yes. what I hear in that question is someone who's working with trauma and they're getting flooded. They're coming back mm. and they're seeing they're flooded with intense emotions and emotional overwhelm and the thoughts. And I have been to that place a lot. <laughs> and there are things I do in the moment around that. Like I, if I'm, and just to what we're talking about, if I'm able to stay, if I'm able to track this experience is in my body and in my mind. If I can stay tracking them, then I won't tip over into that overwhelmed place. Yeah, and even in the moment, if that moment of just feeling that violent awakening or that overwhelm, you can open your eyes if they were closed. You mm -hmm. can put your hand on your body. Yeah. You can um, take a deep inhale and yeah. exhale. Never underestimate the power of that. You know, you yeah. can lie down. Totally. You can touch the ground. There, there are any number of things that you can do that are still part of your mindfulness practice. Absolutely. This is great. We don't know her exact issues, but you both just threw out so many great resources. So I appreciate that. Before the break here, thank you to the listeners who called in with the questions. We want to encourage you to do more of that because we're going to do more meditation parties. And so the number is 1-508-656-0540, or you can send us 
a voice memo to podcast at 10percent.com. The number and email address are in the show notes. Coming up, we're going to talk about the stuff that we're freaking out about, like that we're super excited about, sort of a recommendation segment. We called it last time Kool-Aid. Some people didn't like that. What about Sparks Joy? Hard pass. Hello. <laughs> fills my heart. Fills my heart. Yeah, fills my heart. That's that's right on. Yes. Dan, we'll be right back. We'll be, we'll be right back. We'll be right back with fills my heart. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines: they poop a lot. You need kitty litter. And you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% Happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&M's, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. All right, final segment of Meditation Party. We're going to talk about stuff that is filling our hearts. I'm going to go to the bathroom and vomit. And Seb, why don't you start? <laughs> so there's a few things I'm really into right now. I've talked about dancing before on this podcast and with both of you, and I've just really been going for it. Like I go stone cold sober to these dance parties, probably because the DJs that I'm into are my age or older. They're like, we're not staying out till 4 a.m. anymore. So there are these dance parties from like yeah. 7 to 12. Mm -hmm. They're ecstatic dance and five rhythms. If you're interested in exploring dance, you can look those things up. But these are real dance parties in spaces that have bars. And it's just so fun. It's so fun to really love expressing through the body in a way that 
I've always enjoyed dancing, but there's something about being an old black lady that like, I just don't care anymore. Like I will just <laughs> dance and I'll dance with people and I'll, <laughs> I'll dance the way that I want to and I'll do crazy moves and just have a really good time, you know, and not worry about how I look. I'm not trying to pick anybody up. I mean, if there's somebody cute, I'm not saying anything, <laughs> but I just, it's just fun. And I also do it in my living room and I also do it waiting on the subway platform and like just doing a little two-step if a good Lizzo song comes on in my headphones. And it's just, I denied myself that for a long mm. time. And there are kind of many reasons I could explore why that I'm not going to now, but it feels really good to be beyond that mm. and enjoying it. And kind of connected to that, I've really gotten into singing again. Mm. So I I sang a lot as kind of like a kid. I mean, we all sing as kids, but Middle school, high school, I was in some singing groups, a madrigal group, if you can imagine that. And I joined a choir in the fall. It started by an amazing Black choral director named Troy Anthony. He uses gospel music and all of these amazing arrangements. He's a genius. So I have been, every rehearsal starts with a warm-up that is a chant that was written, he told me, by his friend Tony George. And the words are, I remember, I remember, I remember, I remember who I am. And I've been using it as my morning meditation. And so I sing this to myself in the morning, and I really just allow it to kind of wash over me as a contemplation and I'm really remembering my Buddha nature, my true nature, my divine self, my purpose here, my community. And it's like, it's the best. So I'm going to sing it for you guys. I remember, I remember, I remember who I am. I remember I remember, I remember who I am. And it's amazing to do that with a group of people yeah. who are going into yeah. harmony. It's just, it's the best. It takes a lot of guts to sing like in a room full of other people who aren't singing. I love it so much. It's like, it's the guts that it takes to dance in a room yeah, of people who aren't totally. comfortable dancing. Yes. Or, and it's really my practice right now. You're such a delightful human being and I'm definitely feeling that as you're talking. But I also feel a lot of envy. You know, like I've never been able to unlock myself to dance or sing or anything. Well, I did when I was a kid, but then I ran into the buzzsaw of junior high school masculinity and all of that just went away. And I used to perform in musicals and all that really? stuff. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because you're a musician, too. Yes, well, I, I do still. I, I did play the drums all through. I still play the drums. But when I go to weddings or dance parties, I so want to be out there, but have never really managed to get over myself. And that's like on my list of things that I really do want to tackle in the second half of my life. But you and I have been talking about going to Zumba for years, and it's just we had a pandemic, and we should still do that. We should. I, I think we should go to something at Ecstatic Dance. That could be a space. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would freak you out somewhat. <laughs> Ecstatic Dance. Yeah, yeah, but it's also a really, like, really contemplative space for exploring dance. If I get and enough kombucha in me, I should <laughs> <laughs>
I feel a session coming on for meditation party in October. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, so we, yeah. in October, we have an in-person retreat we're doing at Omega, which is in Rhinebeck, New York. I think there are still a few slots open. Are we going to dance at this thing? Apparently. Yeah, we'll give well, people we the can, option to opt do out movement. big time. But we can do movement. Yeah. We're definitely going to do movement. If I'm going to yes. be, when I'm guiding stuff, I'm going to have options for movement in there. So there will be, and I'll make, we can make it so it's not like, <laughs> it's not going to be terrifying. But I think playing with that part, there's so much value in working with your self-consciousness. Because forget about dance, everything in life. So much of what we feel like we can and can't do in life has to do with how we imagine the kind of person we imagine we need to be inside. It has to do with self-consciousness. And can I say, if go back to hark back to indigenous medicine, there is not an indigenous tradition that doesn't include some yeah. form of movement and singing as part of the medicine, yeah, as sure. part of meditation, exactly. as part of waking up. There's some things you just can't do internally. It has to be expressed. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the medicine of singing and dancing. And you know, I used to go when I would go clubbing. I would I've had some of the deepest meditation experiences I've ever had dancing. I would get into the zone with the music or whatever, not coordinated. And this is not a pretty picture, but for me, it felt wonderful. And then I would start having insights about mind, body, world, the kind of same ones I would have on the cushion just from moving to music. So there's a lot of parallels there. And it's more fun. (laughs) Meditation's fun too. Anything else you wanted to say about that? I'll say the other thing that I'm really excited about right now that's in process is that I'm getting licensed as a New York State hiking guide (laughs) because I love, my favorite thing is to lead meditations in nature. And I realized that I wanted to do that here. And I thought I was just going to lead people out. And someone told me that's legal. Like you actually need a, a license in New York State to lead people on hikes. Oh, really? Even if they're mindful hikes. And so I'm going through the process now. That's, yeah. that's amazing. You're doing so many good things. <laughs> I know. You've got a lot going on. Yeah. It's fun. Being single suits you. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, what do you got? I would just say in terms of like nerd stuff, I mean, I don't have the bandwidth as much because of the parenting, but I on the way to and from my co-working space, I've been listening. John Verveke's the Meaning Crisis. I've been encouraging Dan to get John on his show. He's a University of Toronto cognitive scientist who, really smart guy, a long-term meditator interested in mindfulness, but with a really strong, very strong, rigorous cognitive science background. And he's trying to figure out what is the science of wisdom. There's a lot of other people in this space right now. And But he really ties a lot of things together, like where we are in this cultural moment, the kind of larger sense of malaise, the mental health crisis. And it's all about how we make meaning, what meaning is. And I find it wonderful. And in particular is this idea of fittedness, that a lot of our sense of meaning, it's not something we make in ourselves, nor is it something we have to try to find in the outside world. It has to do with our relationship between ourselves and the world and the degree to which we feel fitted to our life, to our relationship, to our work, that meaning emerges spontaneously from that. And so it's got me thinking a lot about where do I feel that and where do I not feel that? And in his view, you need a sort of ecology of practice. He calls it an ecology of practices to support that. So I highly recommend that. And it's available on YouTube? He's got them on YouTube. They're on a podcast series. They're really smart. I mean, they're like 50,000 episodes long. It's it's very long-winded, but it's full of goodness. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. My enthusiasm or whatever, what's... Filling your heart. Yeah. Right now is is actually pretty similar to what you guys were talking about. I just spent the past week at the TED conference. 
I gave a TED Talk last year, and then I was really surprised. I just loved being there. I've always hated conferences because I don't really like networking. So when they asked me to give a talk, I thought I would fly in and then fly out. They really strongly encouraged me to come and stay for the whole thing. So I, I did, and I loved it. And it wasn't really giving the talk, actually. That was probably the low point in that I was just very nervous about that. And so it wasn't a source of... I enjoyed the actual doing of it, but the days leading up to it, I was really nervous. What I really loved was being in this environment with it, so many fascinating people. And Ted, it's not accessible to everybody. And so my recommendation is not go to Ted. It's put yourself in a situation where you can be around invigorating human beings. And for me, being in this little five-day adult summer camp with a lot of very interesting people, it's like I could. St I was not sleeping. I was staying up until 2, 3 in the morning. As Seb said earlier, stone cold sober, just having amazing conversations with amazing, intelligent, brave people who are doing lots of things all over the world. And it's just a reminder, like I get the same energy being here with you guys. I don't have to go to the TED conference. And uh, again, I can't emphasize strongly enough that my recommendation here isn't try to get into this elite conference. My recommendation is to find people you like hanging out with and do it on the regular. And that is, of course, consonant with what Seb and Jeff were talking about with singing and dancing. It's also consonant with what Jeff was talking about via John Verveke about fittedness or belonging. All of that is of a piece. And I just feel like systematizing that, getting better at really making sure I've got social contact on the regular has been a massive boost to my own mental health. Anyway, does that land what I'm saying? And I would say, because a lot of my dancing has been solo. And especially after the breakup, immediately after the breakup, I challenged myself to go to places by myself. And so that belonging and fittedness started with me. It was really kind of delightful that every time I went somewhere, I would run into someone mm -hmm. I knew mm -hmm. from some part of my life. And, and that was really special. But also feeling that sense of belonging with all these strangers and in the music and in that practice of just kind of being in the world, which you're describing, that I spent a lot of my life looking for that external validation and that sense of belonging outside of myself. And so it's, it's an kind of inside out job now. Let me ask you a question before we wrap up here. We started by talking about you guys feeling a little inhibited last time because you were a little bit about what is this audience going to think of you? What am I going to think of you? How is it feeling now? I feel awesome. Yeah, I feel really relaxed. I'm psyched for our conversations that really go to all the places that are possible. And today felt great. Meaning you want us to get weirder. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. All right. Cosine, we'll do that. that's a promise to the listeners. We're going to get weirder. And again, come join us in person and we'll get super weird. That's coming up in October. Great job, guys. Any f closing thoughts? Happy to be doing this with both of you. Yeah, me too. You fill my heart. And I <laughs> <laughs> appreciate all the listeners who've stayed this long <laughs> to hang out with us. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks again to Seb and Jeff. If you want to be part of the show, call in with a question or a comment. The number is 508-656-0540, or you can email us with a voice memo at podcast at 10percent.com. And we will put all that information in the show notes if you didn't get it. Also, don't forget the Meditation Party Retreat is coming up in October. There are still a few spots left. You can either come in person or attend virtually. 
Again, the link is in the show notes. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davy, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. Shout out to Marissa, who's been the linchpin of this whole meditation party experiment. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. We get our scoring and mixing from Peter Bonaventure over at Ultraviolet Audio. And Nick Thorburn of one of my favorite bands, Islands, delivered our theme. We'll see you all on Friday for a special episode with Gina Rossero, who has an incredible story about living with a huge secret. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you wanna understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.